Hello, I am Laura Sussman, an associate in the Trade and Manufacturing Practice at Global Council. Today, we will be discussing the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, or CSDDD. Joining me are Elisa Seufert, an analyst who is also in the Trade and Manufacturing Practice, and Beata Stefanschenko, an associate in one of our investor services teams. Today, we will start with an intro on the CSDDD, going over the current state of the proposal and looking specifically into the key contested issues that we are expecting to see during negotiations between the three EU institutions. Then we will dive into how this will affect investors, financial services, and corporates. Before we jump in, let's start with the very basics. What is the CSDDD and what does it aim to achieve? The Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, or in short, CSDDD, is part of the growing EU arsenal that aims to make supply chains more environmentally and socially sustainable and transparent. Proposed by the European Commission in February of 2022, if adopted, it would affect both EU and non-EU firms by putting in place two main elements. The first are a set of due diligence requirements on in-scope firms of value chains, and the second are some director duty of care provisions around ensuring that the file is properly implemented and enforced within companies. Now, what does this mean in practice? Conducting due diligence means that firms are ensuring that their business activities are not causing adverse impacts, as the commission has labeled them, for human rights or the environment throughout their supply chains. And they do so by fundamentally embedding due diligence requirements into their company policies. In particular, the CSDDD would introduce requirements for companies to identify and prevent mitigate or bring an end to both the actual and the potential adverse impacts of their activities. Exactly what activities the obligations would apply to are under negotiation, but what we're seeing is that they will likely be not only in-scope firms' own operations, but also some of the activities of their subsidiaries and other entities in their value chains. Companies that fail to comply with the CSDDD's obligation can face sanctions and even national civil law consequences which will be enforced by member state national authorities. And companies that will fall under the scope of the file are once again still under negotiation, but will probably be large and medium, as I mentioned earlier, both EU and non-EU firms that are operating from within the block. Thanks, Laura, for that quick introduction. Alyssa, I was wondering if you could tell us what is the current state of the file and, and what do you think are some of the outstanding points of contention that we can expect to see? Yes, hi, of course. So the CSDDD was proposed by the Commission back in February 2022 and follows the typical EU legislative procedure, which requires the approval of the European Parliament and the Council or the Member States. Currently, the CSDDD is in the so-called trilogue phase, which means that both the Parliament and the Member States are trying to find a compromise on their respective positions and then in the end, agree on a final version of the loan. However, the road towards the current stage was not very easy. Even within the parliament, there was a profound split between the more business-friendly side and the more center-left side on how ambitious the EU should be in setting those human rights and sustainability due diligence standards. So until the very beginning of this month, it was the very unclear whether the parliament would be able to agree on key elements such as the extent of scope and the extent of the due diligence obligations and responsibilities. 
And this type of split we will likely continue to see in the trilogue negotiations, however, in a bit of a different setting, as the parliament was still kind of able to agree on a more ambitious position than the council. So now we will likely see the council taking on a more pro-business approach to try to reduce the burdens for businesses in the final text. And some of the very key sticking points will be around, firstly, the scope. So while Laura already said everyone is kind of in agreement that both EU and non-EU companies should fall inside of the scope, there's still some divergence in the their sort of criteria. So for example, the Parliament wants to generally lower the threshold to get as many companies in scope as possible, whereas the Council and the Commission want to very much avoid for SMEs to fall into the scope. The Council and the Commission, they also want to include high-risk sectors and lower the scope for those high-risk sectors. And so, for example, for textiles, for energy and agriculture, and which, however, the the parliament, due to its very all-encompassing approach, does not want. And then a second key point where we will see some disagreement is the duty of care of directors. So the, this was one of the key aspects the commission wanted to include into the proposal. The parliament has included a provision that would tie the director remuneration to carrying out a company's net zero transition plans, but did not tie that remuneration to the overall due diligence obligation itself, which the parliament initially wanted to, but failed to include due to disagreements between the political parties. The member states are quite clear that they do not want any duty of care of directors to be included and will very likely push to have this excluded quite at the beginning of the trilogues. We expect the parliament, because its position was watered down during their vote within parliament, to agree to have the director's duty to be striked out in the end. The, the final and most contagious issue is surrounding value chain versus supply chain. So basically the question how far downstream due diligence ob obligations should extend. And there is quite a profound misunderstanding what downstream and upstream actually mean. And therefore, even within both the council and the parliament, this was the main discussion point that kept negotiations quite slow. The Commission and the Parliament, they use the value chain approach, which includes mostly also downstream elements, whereas the Council uses an opted for more neutral approach, which is called the chain of activities, which is more of a supply chain approach, however, includes also some downstream elements. The final result after the negotiations will likely be something in between. So we will likely see a supply chain approach with some more downstream elements to be included. What, however, will definitely not be included will be the end users, which the parliament wa was pushing for. I think I would just, those are, I think, the three really main debates. Maybe a couple others to add that we'll see that might be of importance are the, f the first would be sectors covered. 
I won't jump into this too much because Beata is going to do a very good job of of doing it from an from an expert's point of view. But really, one of the hottest topics we've seen has been around the inclusion of the financial services sector. And broadly, it seems like the sector will likely be included, but it really has been a bit of a back and forth also between institutions. And then I think I would also quickly note that the idea of harmonizing the law, especially across all 27 member states, has also been, especially in the parliament within the parliament, a very contentious issue and has been a source of worry also for industry. So it seems like there's a lot of disagreement. And when can we expect this to be finalized? Yes, indeed. So while the proposal is very controversial, there is, however, also an overall interest and incentive for the institution to get this done before campaigning for the EU elections in spring 2024. This is because there's a certain significance associated with the aim to extend human rights protection to such an extreme level that the commission and some parliamentarians want to have included into their list of achievements and use this as a basis for re-election. So from what we have been hearing and based on more the election analysis, we do predict that the council and the parliament will reach an agreement likely at the end of this year or if not, then quite early next year. This would then generally mean for companies that the rules could start to apply either between 2026 and 2027. And I think this is probably a good point to turn from the more legislative overview to how the legislation will actually affect investors and corporates. And I would like to turn to you, Beate. So how have the reactions been from the investor and financial services side so far? Thanks, Alyssa. So, I mean, as you guys have said, the road to the directive clearing the parliamentary hurdle has been extremely bumpy, but especially when it comes to the financial services sector. And the reason for that is because a key point of the contention throughout these discussions has been the degree to which the financial institutions would be covered in the directive scope and how the law will cover asset managers and institutional investors. So in the beginning, there was definitely a vague referencing made to the financial sector, which both the council and the parliament wanted to make very clear. Earlier on, the council said that it had agreed that the inclusion of financial institutions would be up to member states. But the recent vote saw the parliament agree with the April legal committee position that financial institutions, to a large extent, will be covered by the directive. So in this case, most of the financial sector has been pushing against this and saying that it's unworkable. We know that there was very intense corporate lobbying to exclude the financial sector from this legislation altogether, which it did not happen, but it did succeed in watering down some of the rules. So with this recent announcement, what's been approved? What's been approved is banks, insurers, and asset managers. They are now all in scope, which means that they will have to conduct environmental and human rights due diligence on at least the first tier of the companies that they interact with. While some financial institutions have been included in the final text, the ones excluded, interestingly enough, were pension funds, alternative investment funds, market operators, and credit rating agencies. 
So for the banks and insurers, that interaction is based on the agreement of a client relationship with the company when they provide them with covers or loans, for example. But asset managers, they don't really have such agreements with their portfolio companies. So therefore, the jury voted through a specific proposal, which would lay out how asset managers should engage with and perform due diligence on investee firms. Now that we know more about this, it definitely sounds like despite the uncertainty, these actors definitely need to be monitoring the CSDDD. So I guess my question for you would be, what are the main parts of the legislation that we'll see, we're seeing that will really affect these specific actors? Yeah, thanks, Laura. So, so the legal text, it outlines appropriate measures for institutional investors and asset managers, adding that investors must do due diligence to induce their investee companies to bring actual adverse impacts caused by them to, a, to an end. So whilst the CSDDD should not introduce any new reporting requirements, as anyway, all those disclosures will be done through the EU's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, where relevant, investors will be required to engage with investee companies in order to minimize the extent of adverse impact or bring it to an end. So all of these entities must identify the areas that pose the highest sustainability risks and then use their leverage to address those breaches. For most entities, which include insurers and banks, that leverage is through their contractual agreements. But as I was saying before, most large investors don't have the same contract-based relationships with portfolio companies. So they would have to demonstrate their influence through either voting and engagement instead, whether that's with shareholders or stockholders. So these type of disclosures are something that used to be a pure kind of compliance back office function. But with the growing proliferation of regulations like the CSDDD, they have really become an investor relations and risk management focus. So the directive is obviously going to apply to all portfolio companies and potentially fund managers themselves. And they will need to demonstrate that they have conducted certain due diligence in relation to environmental and human rights issues in their own operations, their subsidiaries, and those of their business partners across the supply chain. That's really interesting. I guess looking forward, as we're now in the negotiations trilogue phase, what parts of the CSDDD remain under contentious negotiation and how will these specific parts change and maybe become more or less burdensome for investors or financial services actors? I mean, it's definitely going to be a challenge for the parliament and the council to find a compromise on these proposals because their positions are so opposed when it comes to the way that the directive should treat asset managers and fund providers. At the moment, the way this text is constructed, it is not intended to hold investors liable for causing harm in their portfolios, but they could see penalties for not engaging as part of the due diligence duties outlined in this legislation. So there's definitely going to be a financial risk. So if either through a public scandal or a news story or some kind of regulatory investigation done by a member state or the EU, a big asset manager was found to be consistently including companies that are, for example, deforesting in his portfolio and not conducting effective stewardship to drive improvements, they could be found in breach of this law and be sanctioned or fined by the supervisor. 
That's very interesting. So what is your overall opinion and judgment on this going forward for investors and FS? So, I mean, I believe that this vote is really a significant step in closing the corporate accountability gap. In particular, large investment funds really have to take initiative and start recognizing their global impact. Momentum for hard law is increasingly growing and companies and finance alike must really be ready for this regulatory shift. And I think financial actors have a huge influence over corporate behavior. So I don't believe it's a bold move of the CSDD to require asset managers and financial institutions to conduct due diligence. It's really seen as the right next step. We know that there is research that has exposed how an increasing part of corporate income and profits is transferred to shareholders through dividends and share buybacks. And often that can really be the case that it, that it, it is at the expense of fair remuneration for workers in the supply chain, research and development, climate transition plans, and spending on due diligence to avoid negative impacts on people and planet. And this is usually a result from asset managers and institutional investors using their significant shareholder voting power to pressure investee companies to focus on maximizing short-term shareholder value rather than on the longer-term interests of other stakeholders, which the commission itself has actually identified as problematic. Now, that was the kind of financial services aspect to things. And I want to go back to Laura and Alyssa. What do you guys see on the side of corporates? Yeah, so happy to jump in here. I think fundamentally for corporates, there's definitely been slightly less uncertainty than there has been for the financial sector, as you were just outlining. But all that being said, there's definitely still are a few questions that remain on what exactly the law will entail. So as I mentioned in the beginning, the CSDGD aims to fundamentally change the way that firms operating in the EU monitor their supply chains. And they do this by having in-scope firms really embed the due diligence into their own operations, which, of course, for some firms has been something that they've been doing for a bit, but it will entail new requirements and a fundamental mind mindset shift. This will, of course, bring about administrative and cost burdens as companies will have to look into their own firm's activities as well as, as those of certain actors operating along their value chains. Now, because the obligations of the CSDDD include preventing and even potentially halting these adverse impacts, we also could see actual shifts in supply chains and suppliers as firms have to somewhat reroute the actors that they're using along their supply chains to be when they're conducting this due diligence to be in line with the requirements set out by the EU. And then all of these changes that I just mentioned could, of course, raise the cost of products of operating on the EU and products on the EU market, which, of course, more broadly could mean raised costs for both industry and consumers. Now, the proposal is definitely generally still perceived by many companies to create too many unrealistic obligations. And this includes, for example, the collection of information of suppliers along these value chains. Industry has made clear that a lot of the time they just don't have the access to this information and that it is really a bit excessive for the EU to be requesting for them to do so within the next anywhere between three and five years. So it really is a quicker turnaround than we might expect. And what would some of the major uncertainties be? 
Yeah. So without getting too much into the details, because I think Elisa has already outlined these very well, some of, you know, some of these hot topics that we mentioned. So scope, supply chain versus value chain, whatever else. But I think some of the other ones that we can mention are that one of the biggest uncertainties has been for sectors that are considered high risk. So as Elisa was saying, sectors such as forestry, agriculture, textile and leather, mineral mineral resources and fisheries. Now, both the council and the commission in their positions would like to slightly lower these thresholds for these companies, actually, so slightly smaller companies within these high-risk sectors, or I guess deemed high-risk sectors, would be within the scope. But the parliament does not include this and simply lowers the thresholds more broadly. So I guess for some of these companies, there's a slight sense of maybe being in limbo because they don't know whether they will be in scope or out of scope and exactly how everything will apply to them. And then the second thing that I wanted to mention quickly that I don't think we've touched upon until now as much has been around the parliament having placed provisions that would oblige firms to publish these transition plans that would include internal targets and measures that would accomplish climate neutral value chains and how the company is doing so by 2050. And this is, of course, in line with the Paris Agreement, as well as the EU broader decarbonization goals. And the parliament envisages these plans following reporting guidelines under the existing EU corporate sustainability reporting directive, which Beata, you mentioned earlier, mentioned earlier, of course. And so the idea is that they don't actually bring around new reporting guidelines, but it really depends on how they're defined in the text. So kind of another uncertainty around a potential additional administrative burden. And I do want to caveat this, of course, by saying that whether these quote unquote transition plans actually make it into the final law is unclear. So a bit of limbo around that as well. There's also, I think, another aspect that we often also miss when talking also about increased burden or uncertainty. And this has to do with the introduction of the civil liability regime to enforce the directive. Lots of corporates have raised the concern of increased legal uncertainty arising out of that civil liability regime out due to three main reasons. So firstly, member states have quite a different civil liability regimes, and there is a worry that the enforcement will be fragmented across the EU. Then secondly, and most importantly, there is still quite a lack of clear guidance on what adverse human rights and environmental impact actually means in order for companies to be able to take the right mitigation and preventative measures to prepare ahead of time at every single stage of the global value chain to very much avoid that liability. And then finally, there is also the concern of how the final text will structure that regime because there is an overall concern that the principle of direct causation will be stretched out to also hold companies liable for any damage that is caused through their indirect business relations, which would be very difficult to control and would add an additional layer of big uncertainty for corporates. Thanks, Alyssa. That's very interesting. And and I know you mentioned earlier something about the potential for a lack of harmonization. Do you think you could provide a bit more detail around this? Yeah. So one of the primary concerns for economic actors has been the potential fragmentation of the landscape 
due to the legal nature of a directive. So in short, the way a directive works in the EU is that it's agreed upon and it sets certain objectives. But then there's a certain amount of flexibility, I think we can call it, for member states to then transpose this law into their national law and in order to meet the objectives more broadly. So what happens is that because different member states have very different positions on the CSGDD, and as we've made really abundantly clear, it's been an especially controversial piece of legislation, as well as the fact that some member states actually have existing national due diligence policies in place that could influence the way that they apply the CSGDD, this fragmentation could be particularly apparent for this law. So in an attempt to remedy this, the parliament has introduced what it's calling a single market clause in its negotiating stance. And what it would do is it states that the commission has to actually work to harmonize the legislation through direct coordination with member state authorities. Exactly what this would look like, I think, is still a bit unclear and up for debate. But the idea would be that it helps to harmonize the law more broadly. And whether this will make it into the final text is yet to be seen, but will definitely be a point that especially actually the center right of the parliament, who has been more dubious more broadly of of the CSDDD, has really prioritized because the center right, led by the parliament's EPP group, has been worried about an unlevel playing field across member states caused by differing enforcement, differing levels of penalty and consequences that could detract from the legislation, but could also harm industry. And harmonization has also been one of the main advocacy points for industry, including some major trade associations who specifically highlighted the need for harmonization to ensure this level playing field and not have 27 different frameworks in the 27 different member states. On the other side, on the flip side, you see that member states have made kind of abundantly clear that they view the idea of full harmonization of the CSGDD as practically impossible on a legal basis. So it really will be an area of of hot negotiation in the trilogues that are ongoing and the trilogues to come. I know that the EU has been looking at implementing quite a few pieces of legislation that could require due diligence. So how would these fit in with the CSDDD? Yeah, so... So far, what we've seen, I think the two main other pieces of legislation that would directly interact with the CSDDD are the deforestation regulation, which actually has now been adopted and looks to prohibit the import into or the export from the EU of products that have caused deforestation and the forced labor instrument, which is still in its proposal phase, which aims to once again prohibit the import into or export out of the EU of products that are linked with forced labor. Um, the way that it works is the Brussels sees the CSDGD kind of as the, the building block that holds all of this together. So the CSDGD would set out the framework for due diligence via reporting and internal governments. And the other two pieces of legislation and potentially others to come would be more about regulating products that are being placed on the single market. And in the legislation, you see some due diligence within a broader set of requirements that would be based on the underlying internal policies set out in the CSGDD. So to kind of quickly touch upon the two the two differences, the forced labor regulation focuses on human rights due diligence and will actually allow firms to use their due diligence reports that are conducted on the, under the CSGDD 
as evidence that their supply chains are being properly monitored and hopefully not using forced labor. Now, the deforestation regulation focuses on the other of the two adverse impacts, so the environmental one, and would require some due diligence. And once again, this due diligence framework would mainly fit under the CSDDD, and it would be used to prove that in-scope products are not causing deforestation at any point along their supply chain. So to kind of summarize, both of them build off the due diligence requirements of the CSDDD. So what the commission and I think Brussels and a lot of some capitals as well see the CSDDD doing is actually being beneficial because if it's used properly, firms would already have embedded due diligence within their policies. And so it can actually be used within other files to help facilitate them and help make supply chains more environmentally and human rights friendly. Thanks, Laura, for that great explanation. And I think it's a great way to wrap this up. So thank you both. I just want to say if you or your business or your investments are exposed to this, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We do now have a human rights due diligence offer, both for investors and corporates that specifically touches on issues that we have discussed today and more. So given the ramp up in these kind of regulations, we do believe it is crucial for companies to get ahead in this area. Now you can find all of our contact details and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global.com hyphen council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. <laughs>